thank you very much, Eugene, and uh, my particular thanks to all of you who have managed to come out this evening um, through the inclement weather. It's very pretty, but lovely. So thank you for turning up. And as uh, Eugene was saying, thank you for that intro, this is to some extent a personal reflection on the most recent two, three years of uh, Europe's engagement with the Middle East, but backpedaling a little to the Arab Spring because that's when things began to change and a whole set of challenges which we are still seeking a response to arose. And uh, therefore, this is sort of quite a personal take. I will gallop rather quickly through a lot of events that you're all very familiar with, but trying to put uh, my perspective on how Europe was engaged with this. And ending up, I hope, with some constructive suggestions as to how we could make more of a difference. So it sort of begins since 2011, as we all know, the situation in the Arab-speaking Middle East and North Africa has been effectively turned upside down. And with it, a lot of our assumptions about how the Middle East worked, how the Arab world worked, went with it. And we're still struggling to adjust. But we have to adjust because, to be honest, what happens in the Middle East has too much of an impact on Europe for us not to be engaged there in a way that can protect Europe's collective interests as well as the individual interests of the United States. And therein <coughs> lies a large part of the challenge. So with this dynamic that was unleashed in 2011 still reverberating, still having consequences, some foreseen, some not foreseen, around the region, I will try to sort of run quickly through what we've been doing over the last seven or eight years. And then I think it's important to take stock of how the arrival of Trump has impacted on the region, on Europe, <coughs> and on Europe's policy on the region, because that's the world we are now living in, and then try and look forward. So the Middle East has always occupied a somewhat ambiguous place in European policymaking, because half it is the neighborhood, next door neighbors, very close, we sort of a defined way of dealing with them, and half it, the Middle East, and half to Gulf, and Iran beyond this sort of classic foreign policy territory. And they therefore fall between these two areas. And because, although there's a focus principally on the Middle East, you can't disentangle that from North Africa and from Iran and, in fact, from Turkey. So I'm going to deal with all of them together because you can't disentangle them. So the starting place, I guess, is to recognize the extent of Europe's economic interest in the region. Europe is, I've got lots of statistics, I won't bore you with them, but most countries in the region, their largest trading partner is the EU collectively. Obviously, the North Africans are way ahead. But also for the Gulf, Jordan, Lebanon, uh, Turkey, Iran, a slightly special case. But Europe is a, is a key economic partner, and vice versa, for uh, the region as a whole. And naturally, Trade is an area of European competence. All member states accept that, so when it comes to trade, the EU has a locus. And that sort of emerged after the fall of the Berlin Wall in a European neighborhood policy, which was geared to encourage economic convergence with Europe. And it was quite prescriptive. <laughs> uh, it was, you know, you all want to be like us, don't you? 
and you guys to the south, you really want to be like the guy to the east. Of course, you won't maybe join, but you should be as close to the east as liberalized as you can be. And uh, that didn't work very well. So we revised the neighborhood policy actually in 2015 because lots of the countries of the region said that this doesn't suit us. However, that's to skip ahead, and we can come back to that a bit later. But the point was, this was the framework within which the European Union collectively intended to see its relations, certainly with what's called the southern neighborhood, all of North Africa, Jordan, and Gulf, we've come on to that very differently. But there was a challenge because while the European Union was doing this framework stuff, member states were competing ferociously for national advantage. Given that this trade was large, they wanted as large a slice of it as possible. And therefore, they were very keen to retain the initiative uh, on actual trade and business and the investment in the region. And we saw that particularly around 2008. Everybody was scrambling for Gulf money. All the member states rushed off to try and get something to rescue their banks. And what this means is that the European Union, for its interaction with a lot of these countries, was left really with one carrot and two sticks as leverage for policy on the region. The carrot was obviously the kind of association agreements, the trade offer we can make, the financial support to go with it. The sticks were political statements and sanctions. So really rather either ineffective or blunt instruments. And for the rest, basically member states thought Middle Eastern policy is too important I worked for Africa, that was completely different. Some, a few member states had an interest in Africa, worked with them, and the rest would just go along happily. Delighted to leave it to the European Union. Not in the Middle East. It was a completely different category fish. And they all had their own particular historical connections, Britain in the Gulf, France with Lebanon and Morocco, and Italy with Libya, and you know, everybody was selling arms to the Saudis, and everybody was trying to sell arms to the and, you know, these were far more important things than the European collective policy, it seemed. Mm. And then came the Arab Spring. And this took the EU as much as local rulers, and we were saying before, external commentators. As much my surprise as anybody else, and they scrambled to react. For many, it seemed like 1989 all over again, but in the south, not the east. People were speaking, aging autocrats and slurrotic institutions. We swept away the delicate buds of democracy and needed to be nurtured. And Kathy Ashton, just recently appointed the High Representative with her own little instrument called the European External Action Service, rushed through the Commission to produce a formula. And they published a partnership for democracy and shared prosperity in the southern Mediterranean in uh, March 2011. And then, as the disorder and rebellion spread, they published another one in May called A New Response to a Changing Neighborhood. Um, and all this was, you know, we will offer you a bigger, better deal with the European Union based on three ends, money, mobility, and markets, which is great. It's really, this is going to encourage them to be good Democrats. And we'll encourage government reform and we'll support civil society and uh, the world will be lovely. But two things. Particularly, they uh, invented this wonderful thing called the Deep and Comprehensive Free Trade Agreements, DCFTA. This is what you want, which was again the old formula uh, with large. 
However, it has to be said that joy was not unalloyed. Many member states had rather convenient and certainly lucrative commercial arrangements with the uh, autocratic governments that were so swiftly swept away and were in some ways in some trepidation. Some of these successive regimes might not have been as aligned uh, in their arms purchase policies and uh, trading arrangements that had been very comfortable. In particular, there was trepidation about Egypt, where Muslim Brotherhood government of uh, President Morsi proved more ideologically driven than many had expected. Ashton, Kathy Ashton, moved very fast to try and persuade Morsi to moderate work with the opposition, and he locked up. She was, interestingly, the only external politician who got to see Morsi in prison. Mm -hmm. And uh, she tried to tell uh, the military authorities, you know, you have to deal with this guy, and told him he's got to be a bit more moderate, but it didn't work. And it was simply, swiftly clear that no European power, EU or national, had the leverage to influence development in any significant way. And even the US and Egypt, despite their long-standing relationship And sooner or later, as you have seen, uh, many states have reconciled themselves, even the Italians, particular challenge, mm. their students. Mm. Um, they've reconciled themselves with President Al-Sisi, and they're trying to moderate his political actions by telling him he should be nicer, and uh, that he should liberalize his economic policy, and not just build new suits And it doesn't seem to be working yet. But we keep trying. Tunisia was the country everybody had all the hopes for. <coughs> And there was this magical, peaceful transition. It was all the unparalleled revolution uh, in the South. Uh, they won the Nobel Peace Prize. They are struggling. But they are still struggling in the right direction. And they are struggling peacefully, relatively peacefully. And I think the European Union then, as now, is really doubling down on supporting Tunisia. You know, if Tunisia doesn't survive, there is no good came out of the spring. So the offers that the EU is making will gradually get bigger and bigger. The fascinating thing is that Tunisia, more than any other country, aspires to be like the European Union. And it was said what the Arab street wanted was what the EU had. It was not the last what they got. Uh, except in Tunisia, where they still that is what they want. You go to Tunisia, that's what the young people aspire to. They don't want to join, but that's the kind of freedom they want. Libya next door was altogether more complex. Gaddafi, interestingly, I think he always knew he was sitting on a political pallet, but you know, through bribery and repression, kept bribery political forces under control. But he built no institutions, so all the networks were basically around him. So there was no mechanism for change or for an alternative structure after he left. When Gaddafi responded with force, despite the efforts of the African Union, it was clear he was carrying on killing. Distance and death. And amongst the EU, there was some nervousness about this, but basically, France and Britain persuaded the US it's worth bombing, getting rid of it, fantastic. And they all rushed in then to try and consolidate that situation. But European powers were no more equipped to manage the transition in Libya than the Libyans were. Attempts to put in place a physical presence were swiftly withdrawn after the Benghazi fiasco. And the EU eventually came in behind the UN-led uh, political process. They selected the EU special representative, Bernardino Leon, to lead the UN process. They ended up with a skill-out accord. The EU and its member states all jumped behind this and said, yes, let's do this. 
gave full backing, and the EU is still sort of four square behind the UN process. The political realities on the ground are complicated by the continuing fight against both what to the Islamic State, and the other is the jihadists, pulled up from Benghazi, and by the fact that some member states have a very divergent economic interest. French, Total, very big in Eastern Libya, French giving significant support, General Haftar, so the Egyptians, so the Emiratis, the um, Turks, and Qatar, and the Emiratans, who are leading the fight against the United States, and the US gave them some support. Um, the Italians, you know, kept all their friends in Tripoli, happy, and they'll come onto the migration issue later. So, EU member states were not entirely aligned. They could all agree we supported the UN process, and that the EU collective policy was that a lot of other things were going on at the same time, some of which we were aware of, some of which we weren't. And a tug of war for control over the oil facilities and the central bank were really where the power relations told. And the government of the central bank decided the prudent policy for him was just to keep paying everyone. So he kept paying everyone. And that was also prevented any leverage to try and create a more stable political structure. And until that happens, until there is some, someone who can control the money, the existing situation, I guess, will carry on. But at the moment, the EU is stuck. The member states, I think, have realized that supporting all these different factions hasn't helped in the long run. And if you like, there's a convergence now towards everybody sticking behind the idea French had confidence on the Italians, had umpteen confidence in Rome. None of it got The situation in Syria was obviously the most difficult. Not least because of the multiplicity of different conflicts taking place in the same space. And that's proven the greatest challenge to European policymaking in the region over the last few years. The transformation of the protest movement in 2012 to 13 scale rebellion in the face of President Assad's repression posed the allied countries, if you like, with a dilemma. The EU, US, Turkey, the Gulf Arab countries, all eager to get rid of Assad, for obvious, obvious but rather different reasons. But as often happens in a revolutionary situation, the moderate liberal Democrats are the people who get squashed into the ground. And they are not effective at prosecuting a guerrilla war, or at least not nearly as effective as uh, ideologically motivated rebels. So they tend to get squeezed out. And then you had both Turkey and Qatar actively supporting Islamic forces into the Muslim Brotherhood. Turks would say to us, oh, we never realized they were quite so extreme <laughs> And that. And uh, Europe and the US put themselves with a dilemma of whether to ultimately tolerate a dictator, support an Islamic-based resistance, or intervene directly themselves. Certainly amongst the EU member states, there was no appetite for any of these three options, collectively. William Hague started off saying, yeah, we'll just be active and support uh, the opposition, send arms and the rest, it was very controversial, he was on his own, and it never worked anyway. And uh, then with characteristic carelessness, uh, David Cameron lost the vote. I can't it. There were two turning points in the war. Obama's decision not to enforce his red line, uh, in August 2013, following, as I say, David Cameron's anxious and careless failure to secure backing for airstrikes in the British Parliament. And the second turning point 
was uh, Russia's decision to send air support to Assad in September 2015, when the regime was teetering on breaking plans. In 2016, following this intervention, it was clear the West were not going to be military. Russians did. 2016, we had this succession of meetings with the ISSG, the International Syria Support Group. John Kerry, Lavrov, we all used to turn up in Vienna, in New York, in Paris, and wherever they were to be, to try to contain the situation uh, without actually intervening, where Russia was increasingly holding the hand in alliance with Iran. And these, again, effectively got nowhere. The EU's policy here was to support uh, civil opposition, the moderate opposition as we call them, try and get some weight behind the UN negotiations in Geneva with Stefan Mistura, but ultimately the regime was not going to be persuaded to play ball, they didn't want to play ball, they couldn't be forced to play ball, the Russians didn't make them play ball, and uh, the Geneva negotiations got nowhere. And because there was no wish for physical intervention, the Arab forces who had hitherto been supporting the opposition to Assad gradually sneaked away. And Saudi Arabia decided actually, you know, Gaddafi and Jordan um, made up with uh, Putin in particular. The Turks as well, following the shooting down the Russian plane, getting a very robust Russian response, increasingly realized, or we increasingly realized, the only thing they really cared about was the Kurdish question and avoiding the creation of autonomous Kurdish state along their southern border. And they realized they were not going to achieve that by toppling Assad, so they could only achieve it by getting in bed with the Russians and the Iranians, which is more or less where we are now. And power shifted to the Astana group, from which uh, the Gulf Arabs were excluded, the EU was excluded, the US were invited to join, but didn't. They observed it for a while, but basically drifted away. So Syria remains, if you like, a signal failure to identify any strategy that would effectively defend our interests. Come back to this. Obviously, that war was complicated by the explosion of uh, Islamic State in 20, early 2014, both in Iraq and Syria. That's multiplied by different conflicts taking place. The EU and all its member states immediately signed up a global coalition to deal with ISIS under uh, US leadership. Our contribution, our EU contribution primarily put in sanctions, particularly financial sanctions, trying to shut off the flow of money uh, into uh, state areas. And it was not a coherent approach. But nevertheless, it felt there had to be some response. And after a very uh, difficult, time-consuming process, the EU finally agreed a regional strategy Syria and Iraq, as well as the ISIL-Daesh threat in March 2016. And this wasn't really a strategy at all. It was uh, a couple of objectives and a list of things to do. Because they couldn't really agree what is our strategic response here, how do we But as I said, was, uh, what they delivered were effectively sanctions. The second delivery was humanitarian aid. This is the other thing the EU can do, humanitarian that brings you to the migrant migration challenge, which I will 
come back to and say. But related to this were the approach towards Iran, which has basically had no relation with the EU at all. And none of the member states wanted the EU to have relations with it, except humanitarian money. And Jordan and Lebanon, though they did have important relations with uh, serious association agreements, uh, real trade. Um, but again, the immediate challenge was prop up these governments, avoid contagion from Syria, and help them keep the refugees where they were. And that became the leadership of European policy towards Jordan and ultimately some extent Iraq. And that was a success, often underappreciated, but the London Conference and the Brussels Conference in 2015, 2016, did provide enough support that these countries had not collapsed, which they could have done. And that containment of the Syrian conflict, if you like, was relatively successful. Of course, 2015 was a turning point for European policy towards the region as a whole because of this migrant crisis. A million people came across uh, the Mediterranean, most through Greece, they just kept on going, people kept shoveling them through until they ended up in Germany or Scandinavia. And at the same time, the numbers coming across the Mediterranean from Libya increased to about 200,000 coming into Italy that way. Uh, panic. European councils every month uh, must uh, respond to this. There are terrible political consequences in Europe. And it became the defining the dominant factor of policy. This impacted on the relationship with Turkey, which is always complicated had been getting more complicated. It was especially more complicated following the coup in 2016, and relations with Erdogan were already sliding to the dive for the worse. But they were critical to stopping this flow of refugees and keeping the, whatever it is, two, three million Syrian refugees in, in Turkey. It was no accident that the flood started, and then the flood suddenly stopped. And the price was three billion, Euros, then doubles to six billion, uh, and the Turks have stuck to that deal more or less uh, since then. And from 500 a day, the numbers coming across the Aegean fell to 50 a day, less than that. So Turkey's position on Syria, I described, the migration crisis, apparently now, and Turkey eventually also basically cuts its support to the Syrian. Still a few groups within Gaziantep uh, doing their best to try and keep something going in Idlib. Uh, Turkey is officially the guarantor of Idlib, but for how much longer, we don't know. In a sort of parallel universe to all this, the Iran nuclear deal was signed. And that was you know, a, a strategic decision by the Obama administration that could try and get the Iranians not to make the Middle East a nuclear area through carrots as well as sticks. The sanctions worked, the negotiations succeeded, the EU had a central role, partly because of the extreme P5 plus Germany and the EU and Iran on the other side. The EU's role was important because the Iranians accepted the EU as an interlocutor. They would not speak directly to the Americans. Couldn't. So actually, the EU was the interface. Kathy Ashton and then Federico Mogherini played an absolutely central role in getting that deal to conclusion. The Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action uh, signed in 2015. And 
the JCPLA became and remains the linchpin of European policy towards the Middle East. It is that this is a better way of containing Iranian ambitions. Sadly, it was clear what it did not do was reduce Iran's ambitions for physical control on the ground in the region. The Iranian strategy of forward defense against the hostile threat as they see it from the threat of Saudi Arabia was championed by the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps and particularly Hassan Suleiman. And that in involved mobilization of Shia militias uh, in Iraq, in Lebanon, and to some extent in Syria, on the Alawites, uh, but Hezbollah is the sort of classic locus of this, but also supporting the Houthi rebels in Yemen. I don't think it's an ideological, this was purely an opportunity that arose that they couldn't resist to weaken the sound from the south. But the result was that Saudi Arabia became increasingly scared that Iran was becoming more successful. And it appeared that Iranian influence was reaching further west than at any time since Darius the Great. And this compounded what we were already seeing is the split between moderate Sunni and radical jihadist Sunni. So you then had a Shia Sunni split. And I have to say the Iranians were extremely successful at building a coalition with uh, Arabs, Shia Arabs, which I fear the reaction of certainly the Gulf monarchies has merely exacerbated this. And they have successfully cut across the traditional ethnic divide by building for themselves an Arab constituency of Shia. And that complicates the situation in the Middle East. The EU, as ever, preached human rights and reconciliation to everybody. And um, local regimes um, tend not to be listening, except in Iraq. And we'll come back to Iraq. So Saudi Arabia then was trying to get a coalition of Sunni to uh, tackle Egypt. While the British, French, and Germans have strong, even intense, bilateral relations with the Gulf states, the EU had to have virtually none. Without the need for a trade deal, first exporting oil, imported anything they liked. And feeling more comfortable in relations with old fashioned nation states, uh, the Saudis relegated uh, EU relations to a partnership with the Gulf Cooperation Council, the GCC. And the large member states were entirely happy with this. On one issue, the Saudis were willing to talk to the EU. That was the Middle East peace process. Now, I've been through the whole thing, whereas 10 years ago, the Middle East peace process was front and center of European policy on the Middle East. And it's now almost relegated to a full. However much European foreign ministers continue to care about it, and however active the quartet in which the EU represented all the member states uh, was in meeting regularly in the margins of the UN meetings, nothing happened. <laughs> nothing was happening on the Middle East process. Now, EU relations with Israel hung in a strange kind of limbo of intimacy and alienation. Trade relations were intense. Uh, Israel had one of the deepest and most successful of the association agreements. And relations, including between Mogherini and Netanyahu, were quite close, but also slightly conflicted. The EU remained firmly committed to supporting the two-state solution and opposing Israeli settlements in the occupied territory. We worked very hard to hold the line on that through uh, labeling the uh, issue because from the occupied territory must be labeled as that. But Netanyahu's political genius 
in stalling the two-state solution, allowing settlements to continue creeping progress, aided unintentionally by the Italy divided uh, Palestinians, uh, extremely effective, led to continuing tension between the EU and Israel. But without the EU having the means to change Israeli policy. On the contrary, the Israelis were rather, rather effective at trying to contain, constrain EU policy by lobbying their good friends, the Greeks, the Cypriots, the Hungarians, Poles, whoever, to try and limit. EU's ability to stick to its line on the two-state solution. It became clear in the years following the Arab Spring with the Syrian conflict and the Saudi-Iranian rivalry splitting the region, the Palestinian issue was relegated to the back burner, and of course that suited Israel, just fine. And then came Mr. Trump. The US election of 2016 delivered a shock not only to the US body politic, but to the world at large. The extent of that shock is only becoming clearer only becoming clearer in the past. On the least and on European policy of the least is profound. The nature of Trump's foreign policy is entirely clear. It's less a calculated foreign policy than a sort of deep-seated worldview. How it plays out in particular circumstances is as unpredictable as the man itself. Because uh, he has no idea or often can't begin to imagine the consequences of his own actions. Michael Wolfe, uh, Father Fury, summarized it by saying, uh, the new foreign policy and effective Trump doctrine was to reduce the board to three elements, powers we can work with, powers we can't work with, and those without enough power who we can disregard. I would put it slightly differently. You know, this is great. America is the greatest power in the world. It doesn't need anybody else. It's stronger dealing with other people bilaterally rather than multilaterally because we're bigger than them. We'll get deals to our advantage. So you defend those who do what you want. You bully those who don't do what you want. And if you can't bully them, you just pull out. And it prefers dealing with autocrats. So it feels the better More at home with them than with Democrats. Both with a small D and the big D. And above all, the show is more important than the substance. The Saudis have the measure of Trump from the start. Flattery, generosity, pomp, Iran bashing, he did whatever they wanted. First overseas visits, so entirely to their agenda, uh, even the blatant murder of Istanbul, Jamal Khashoggi, did nothing to deter Trump his support. Uh, gave rise to his single most illuminating statement of his foreign policy, which if you haven't read, you should, which is a statement by President Donald J. Trump on standing with Saudi Arabia. And if I can summarize it, but it's worth reading. Basically, the president says the world is a dangerous place, so we need to stick by those who fight our enemies, buy our arms, and invest in our country, even if they might kill a few people. <laughs> Values gone, and a very narrow view of American self-interest. The immediate consequence of this was the Gulf crisis. Qatar's determination to run an independent foreign policy, particularly in support of the Muslim Brotherhood, had caused considerable friction the GCC before they had been sent to Coventry more than once. But uh, MDS, the Crown Prince, uh, thought the ideal chance to discipline the Al-Tani is the good. And uh, Trump agreed, so even if the rest of the administration didn't, but they went ahead, they expelled Qatar. The scale of this miscalculation is becoming clear, because the GCC is effectively dead, it seems to operate, 
Qatar has actually reinforced its autonomy rather than come to here. And it looks like the situation will continue there. With a significant weakening, if you like, of the Sunni front against Iraq. The second consequence is in the war in Yemen. Stability in the Yemen is critical to Saudi Arabia. True, there are missiles coming, landing, primarily and primarily Mecca, are a serious threat to them. But they persuaded Trump is solely a problem created by, supported by Iran, uh, and therefore got full support for continuing their campaign to restore stability by force in alliance with the Emirates after the Houthi rebels ousted President Hadi, despite the fact that this war went on and on and got nowhere. The EU has been torn between the liberal desire to condemn the civilian casualties caused by the Saudi forces and their allies, and the efforts of the UK in backing uh, the US to exercise some influence and restraint on the Saudis by working alongside them to stop the targeting civilians. Um, with of success that we've seen. So it didn't really help the war in Yemen. We'll see whether post Khashoggi there is now more of an effort to get the Saudis. And there was a moment at which the Saudis could have bought peace just with money, and they didn't. They went on fighting. That moment has passed. And it's again a triumph of the Iranian policy to be a very small investment to basically create something that's totally absorbing most of Saudi Arabia's the third consequence of Trump withdraw from the JCPOA and the imposition of sanctions against Tehran, reversing this policy of trying to contain Iran with a bear hug and replacing it with the politics of the bare knuckle fisticuffs. This was a campaign pledge, couldn't be <coughs> by his advisors not to pursue it, and Israel and Saudi Arabia cheering him on. But as on his policy on China, there's no sort of coherent direction to this strategy, isn't there? The strategy, other than conflict until there's a knockout or a submission. Sadly, international relations differ from all in wrestling. The contests are more complex, more multi-dimensional, less choreographed, and less predictable. And the outcomes may differ radically from the initial assumptions of what the outcome would be. But it leaves this JCPOAC leaves the EU hanging in midair. They want to stick to the original plan, but they haven't got the power to do so. Uh, because ultimately, it's true, with US sanctions, no European company will take the risk mm -hmm. of going in. And although they're trying to construct ways around it to support the Iranians, it's not working. Fourthly, it goes on. Trump announced his determination to settle the Palestinian-Israeli conflict once and for all by sending in Jared Kushner to come to the deal of the century, while simultaneously making such a deal almost impossible by implementing another campaign promise to move the US embassy to Jerusalem. Contradictions, you know, are just unbelievable. But he has no awareness that uh, one action has a direct consequence on the other. And the EU, far from working in tandem with the US to try to keep the two state solution alive, is sort of left hung out, still saying we support a two state solution while Mr. Netanyahu is fighting another election campaign to uh, get himself re elected on the assumption that he will be able to continue blocking. Lastly, he demonstrated the same level of skill on Syria, declaring both his determination to combat Iranian influence and to withdraw U.S. support from the Kurds, uh, the ally in the region, apparently either under pressure from or bribed to Erdogan, who simultaneously bought some U.S. missiles and well, Russian missiles. Uh, so you end up by 
both. This policy coherence makes, again, life very difficult for the EU. Our existing dilemma is compounded whether to accept an fate of complete, a de facto victory, or become a player in the building country, or stick to the principle that there's no support without a political deal, which is unlikely to happen by coming out of the action. This brings me to, in this truncated world, what should the EU be doing in the East? So I'll wrap up with a few concluding thoughts. The EU is now widely perceived as the best a big part player in the Middle East, and at worst a mere bystander, suffering fallout but unable to influence the course of events. In 2017, Judy Dempsey of Carnegie Europe asked a range of experts, is Europe powerless in the Middle East? Some agreed, others didn't, but everybody concluded that it was even failing to deploy effectively the economic power it did have. European institutions do have a coherent global strategy. It's called the EU's Global Strategy. And it was published in June 2016 by Federico Mogherini just after the Brexit vote to show that we still have, uh, we, sorry, the EU still has a new uh, coherence. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, it recognized that the EU had values, economic influence, and said that that won't be enough. We need to be able to protect ourselves. There needs to be a security dimension. At least we have to build a cooperation with NATO. This was before Trump's election. But without a security dimension, European foreign policy will not succeed. And this was true. Now, the Middle East, along with the Balkans and Eastern Europe, is the proving ground for this. And it's frustrating that just as a common policy becomes a little more necessary, becoming more and more difficult. I managed to get through the whole of this so far without mentioning Brexit. I'm not going to mention Brexit. <laughs> Brexit poses a particular threat to Europe's global influence and influence in the Middle East in particular. But it also is a threat to the influence of all member states. And this is appreciated by the member states, not by people. It's hard to imagine a worse time geostrategically for the EU to speak. In terms of the diversion of political energy, the confusion of Voice, the risk of divergence in foreign policy. That uh, Brexit is bad for both the EU and the UK is clear on the international sphere. In an uncertain world where the international rule of law is being replaced by the law of the jungle, the big beasts in this jungle will eat the small ones for lunch, unless the latter band together in self defense. You can think of the EU as a little bunch of furry animals. Uh, really, they're, they're, they're very sweet and nice, but they can't do much. Unless they do it collectively. They seem starving. <laughs> can, be, can be successful, but they have to work together. Unfortunately, the splintering of the Middle East that we've seen since 2011 is now at risk of being matched by a splintering within the EU. The populists, Italy, Hungary, Poland, challenging the more orthodox European policies of France, Germany, and the Mormoners, with both Russia and America cheering them on. Those meeting on the Middle East, being co hosted by Poland and America to sort of challenge the EU orthodoxy on the basic So Europe's dilemmas across the Middle East are already great, and uh, the unpredictability of the traditional US ally and the East made it all harder effective, while more important. So, underpinning this, the EU has principles, human rights, values, democracy, governments, and the rest. We have interests, the economic 
trade, which is still critical for the member states. How do we mix that into a policy that will work? I would say there should be three guiding principles for European policy in the future. Firstly, the EU needs to underline that its support is to the people of the region, where the people are well represented by government, you support governments. In diplomatic practice, you support states, not governments. Obviously, we don't prescribe how people should govern themselves. Everybody has their own views, their own compromises, their own way of making a system work. But accountability and representation should be an integral part of that, because if they're not, state will likely, the government itself will not last long. And there are the basic freedoms in the UN Charter uh, that uh, reflected most of the written constitutions in these countries that we should continue supporting. But it's the people. Secondly, the EU remains committed to the stability and prosperity of the region, to enable its people to enjoy security and employment. Therefore, we should continue to pledge our fight against terrorism, encourage support peace processes where they exist, sometimes even after many years they will be necessary, and continue to seek economic agreements that support economic growth for both parties, so that there will be more jobs in our neighbouring Thirdly, the EU needs to support a balance between the states of the region, between the neighbours. Efforts to achieve hegemony will bring only instability and conflict. Now that there is no longer a single guarantor for stability in the region, for a while the US effectively did play that the countries of that region will have to find a balance. And if they don't, the instability and conflict will be compounded. The EU has to support that process <coughs> and encourage it more than support. How will we apply these in the particular cases? As I said, with Iran, the EU is a prisoner of US policy to some extent. But we have to keep the process alive because, firstly, it is a forum still where we can discuss core issues in the Middle East with Iran, with Russia, with China at the table. As a, as a grouping, it has value, even if the objective of that grouping is not effective for that one. Very hard to predict what the political process will deliver in Iran. So again, it's a process you have to keep alive, because it may come back into its own. Or indeed, what the political process in the US will deliver, I'm So it's on life support, but it needs to be kept on life support, don't pull the plug. On the other side of the regional divide, Saudi Arabia, as I said, did itself great harm through the Khashoggi affair. But few European countries, national, national states, can afford financially or politically to put themselves on a high moral horse. So instinctively, on principle, the EU would be much closer to the Turkish position on Khashoggi, <laughs> condemning the action, demanding punishment of all those responsible. But you know, Turkey's self-interest in this quarrel is equally obvious, and we can't afford to take sides. So the EU have to keep at it. But we can do that while sustaining the pressure to try and resolve the Yemen crisis, which is reverberating throughout Europe. And unless European countries do take a strong stand on this, at a time when Saudi Arabia is susceptible to pressure on that issue, there will be even less chance of trying to resolve it, even though not.
very optimistic, but we have to sort of try. Uh, Syria, though, remains the crucible of the East policy. Both of Russia and Iran, Assad has effectively won. That is not going to change. Uh, US policy is all over the place. Without assets on the ground, EU influence remains small. This position of Syria remains important. We'll all be watching the next Syria conference in March to see where the position is. Uh, there will sense to be humanitarian fundraising. There will be pressure on the EU to become more involved in the substantive reconstruction of Syria. Both to recognize the and to encourage the refugees to go back, not to go on. But to do that would be a mistake. As long as Assad remains, the number of refugees willing to go back is going to be minimal and rightly. And this has always underpinned, uh, understanding that point, underpinned the EU's insistence on the political transition as an essential precursor of construction. No reconstruction without transition. That has got to stay the line. Russia and Iran must bear the cost. The higher that cost, for them, the better. So, of course, they will try and milk what they can out of Syria. It's not a long time. We'll see how long they are willing to bear the cost. The Kurdish position is crucial. And the fact that uh, Trump actually withdraws, he had no idea that this basically, even those relatively small number of US troops, gave them a position here, and it put the Kurds in a position of bargaining power within the Syrian situation, as well as in relation to uh, fighting the Islamic State. But they will now be looking to make their peace with Assad. They certainly can't make it with the Turks. So it's the terms of that deal that is now a critical factor in Syria. I assume the Russians are broken in this, because the US are. And we'll have to see what kind of deal it is. But ultimately, if there is a deal, that will further reinforce Assad. So I think the EU should take a three-pronged approach. We should, as far as we can, urge the US to remain engaged. Clearly, there are elements within the administration who are desperate to do that. Trump has rode back a little bit. Because uh, as soon as the US do that, because it changes the dynamic of the ground. Secondly, we have to continue the policy of supporting Jordan, Lebanon, and in fact Turkey, in terms of enabling them to keep the refugees there. The stress on these countries is growing, well, particularly Jordan and Lebanon, less so in Turkey. Erdogan quite likes the refugees, they all like Erdogan and work for it. And if they become Turkish uh, citizens under the new visa free travel, they can all travel to the European Union. So he's probably wanting to give more citizenship. But, you know, we need particularly Jordan and Lebanon. They are still in, in a critical state, and uh, money has to keep pouring in. This is the only way Jordan has ever survived. This is what hot air pumping money in the state of work. Finally, we should reiterate that an eventual solution must, in, in Syria, must include security guarantees for those who wish to return, <laughs> and obviously participation in the government is the best guarantee of that. We may be a long way away, but. That has to be part of our policy. So, and this here is where that question of balance that I was mentioning earlier has to come in. The rival forces, the competing powers in Syria, have to achieve some kind of a balance. Otherwise, it will be perpetually. And Turkey's role remains critical, as I said, 
and they need a level of comfort that the Kurds in Syria will not support the PKK proactively. Now, it'd be easiest if he went back to trying to deal with the PKK. And we might get to that point, but we haven't got there yet. Political dynamics in Turkey is not very guaranteed. But all this, to me, points to the importance of Iraq, because Iraq is the one country in the region with sufficient resources and sufficient incentive, after a decade of conflict, to build a political structure which will enable Shia, Sunni, and Kurdish communities to live reasonably amicably together in one space. And the revival of the Iraqi economy will have major regional knock-on benefits, particularly for Jordan, used to export massively uh, to Iraq. So from my point of view, top priority of the EU is support Iraq. And the Iraqis are keen to have support because we're not Iran, we're not the US. Nobody can object to EU support. And for the member states, it's much easier to support through the EU than France and Britain and too closely aligned with the US in terms of being neutral. So there is a real opportunity there that would pay huge dividends. And finally, on the migration issue, because that remains top of the box, the Maghreb needs again, all the support we can get to re-establish stability in Libya and promote economic growth in the other four countries. And they need, and they know they need it, and the EU can help them achieve that. We now have these more flexible association agreements, partnership agreements, so they are tuned, the Algerians are happier, but they need support to get their economies moving and satisfy the young people in the street. Libya won't stabilize swiftly. Again, it's a question of containing the conflict, and as I mentioned earlier, finding a way to get the money into a form that incentivizes people to participate in the political structure and not just maintain their own autonomy, which is where we are at the moment. And the UN process, again, will be the ultimate way by which we hope to achieve that. So, I conclude. The policy prescriptions are easy, implementation is not. I don't have any magic solutions. But the EU does need to define its approach to it and consistent. And the Member States and the UK, after its decade, need to act collectively in the region. Because without it, they will all end up suffering. So I'm not in it. Thank you.